Hello, and thank you for subscribing to the Grace Downtown podcast. My name is Rick Barry. I'm a staff member here at Grace Downtown. And before we get started, I'd like to take a minute to explain to you very quickly what to expect from this podcast. We're planning on sending you two episodes a week. On Mondays, we're going to be sending you a recording of the sermon that was preached the night before at Grace Downtown. Then later in the week, we're going to be sending you a recording of a recent class or seminar or the story of how God is at work changing lives in our community or the recording of a sermon or special event from farther back in Grace Downtown's history. Hopefully, this will make it even easier for you to go back and revisit material that was particularly encouraging or challenging to you, and easier to share that material and talk about it with other people. If you've been part of our community for a while and there's a sermon that you'd like to hear again, or if you remember a talk at a fall retreat that was particularly meaningful to you, drop me a line, let me know about it, and I'll see if I can dig it up to run it in a future episode. My contact information is on our website at gracedc.net slash downtown. Now, I'm going to hand this over to Matt Miller, who coordinates adult education for our congregation and is going to introduce what you're about to hear today. My name is Matt Miller. I'm the adult education coordinator at Grace Downtown. The concept of the Trinity is one of the strangest claims that the Christian faith makes, but it's also one of the most important. This past January, the Grace DC Network ran three classes exploring what the Trinity means. One of those classes was led by Dr. Howard Griffith, who's the Dean of Reformed Theological Seminary in McLean, Virginia. His classes met for three two-hour sessions. Over the next three weeks, we'll be bringing you the recordings of his lectures from each of those classes. We've cut out the question and answer breaks from each of those sessions, but if you'd like to follow up on anything you hear, you can send me an email at matt at gracedc.net. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you. I'm Howard Griffith. When I um, finished pastoral ministry and started seminary teaching, I was asked to teach a class on the doctrine of God. It's a massive thing to do. And uh, you know, I knew it was coming because I was a theology professor, but... Um, the more I learned and the more I studied the nature of our God, uh, I was very much convic- convicted that I hadn't really talked about God enough as a preacher. I preached in the same church for 25 years, but I have wished that I had spoken about God more and talked about him and taught about him more. So this is a wonderful opportunity for me to get to do a little bit more of that. So let's pray together and we'll seek God together. Our Father, we thank you uh, for your greatness. We thank you that you've made yourself known in your Son and in your Word and by your Spirit. We pray, our gracious God, that you'd help us to approach the subject of discussing you as the triune one with a humble heart, um, with a, a sharp mind, and with great love for one another. We pray, Lord, <clears throat> you'd give us, um, just give us patience and that you'd, you'd give us uh, sensitivity. And we thank you, Lord, that in all that you are, uh, you're full of mercy and full of kindness. 
We thank you, our God, that we come to you in the name of Christ. And we ask your blessing now in the blessing of your spirit and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, what we have to do uh, now is uh, talk about the the doctrine of the Trinity. and, And what I'd like to do over these weeks is tonight talk about the Trinity in Scripture. And then next week, um, the church struggles to say it, the history of the church's discussion of the doctrine of the Trinity. And then um, in the third week, talk about our adoration of the Lord as triune. Uh, We'll explore how the the triune God is our delight uh, in worship and in prayer. God is one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Now, this is a great mystery, the great mystery of our faith. And it's the one belief that's held in common by the people of God everywhere. Think about that. Ultimately, it's a secret that only God himself understands. And we might be inclined to ask, how valuable is it to know this, to know that God is one essence, and three persons. Or we might raise the issue in our very conflicted world. Um, It's a doctrine, a teaching, a distinctive of the Christian faith that many, many people challenge. Islam rejects it as the ultimate heresy, the doctrine of the Trinity. So how important is this? given our many cultural difficulties, uh, cultural difficulties, especially uh, in in this period. Many people consider the doctrine incoherent, and many more suppose we can just as well do without it. And there are lots of reasons for the state of affairs, but but we can say that it's crucial to our understanding of God and man to know that God is three in one. God has told us a little about this secret. God the Father and the Son and the Spirit love each other, and God wants to share that love with us. And that's the takeaway, really. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love one another eternally and passionately. And this God wants to share that love with us. Now, I don't want to start in a defensive posture uh, in talking about this. Rather, I want to begin in faith. And faith means listening to the word of God. That's at the very heart of things. Now, you know that. I know you know that. But because we're creatures, you and I, And then even more, because we tend to distort the knowledge of God, it's important at the beginning to recognize that we're dependent on God's word in understanding him. It's not our thinking, absolutely not. It's not our speculation. It's not even our experience that gives us a true knowledge of God. It has to be God. It has to be God himself who gives us a true knowledge of himself by his spirit through his word. So as we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, we're not working out a math problem. We're not doing philosophy uh, or a philosophical idea. What we're seeking to do, what I would hope we, we can do, is to reflect 
on the revelation that we have in Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture is the God-breathed record of what God has done for us once for all in Jesus Christ. That's a way of capturing what the Bible is, really from beginning to end. So as we approach this subject, we approach with our shoes off, off our feet, because the Trinity is holy ground. Um, God is not like us. He loves us. He saves us. But we approach him as the Holy One. And as we think, we need to pray for God to open our hearts uh, to know him and then test our thoughts by scripture. So that's that's what I'm wanting us to do. Um, Okay, so let me let me just pause and and, you know, if I run over some submerged premise that you, you think, why did he say that? You've you got to raise your hand and let me know, okay? So I'm, I'm going I'm to leave it with you. But please feel free to do that. Maybe I can get Bob Baldwin to get me going here. I don't know. But anyway. Fine, Howard. Oh, good. Okay, great. Oh, great. Now, our basic definition is there's only one God, and he exists in three persons. There's only one God, and he exists in three persons. And the church, in every branch from the very beginning, has confessed the Trinity. Uh, Roman Church, Eastern Church, Protestant Church. Think of the structure of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Apostles' Creed was first mentioned, referred to in the year 390. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And then goes through the life of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ. And then says... I believe in the Holy Spirit, a holy Catholic church or holy universal church. Now, why does the whole church, why has the whole church made this confession of God as triune? Well, there are two reasons, and they're interdependent reasons. And the first one is that it's the triune God, it's the Trinity who has saved us. It's the Trinity who has saved us. Every believer... In the, in the world, makes this simple confession. Jesus died for my sins. But see, when you make that confession, Jesus died for my sins, uh, you think of a text like John 3.16, our famous text, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That simple confession involves huge issues. <coughs> It involves the Bible's teaching on the incarnation, God becoming flesh, on the atonement, and on the Trinity. All of us have received the sign of baptism. If we're Christians, we've received the sign of baptism. Jesus says, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, gives his commission to the disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we commonly think of this passage almost entirely in terms of the church's responsibility for evangelism. But what we might not notice there is that Jesus teaches us the divine name. And what is that name? It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
This is the name that every Christian bears. So one of my <clears throat> mentors, Dr. Pierre Marcel, puts it this way. He says, I cannot plumb the depths of the mystery of his deity, but only adore all that has been revealed in God. The father who takes pity on me, who abased himself for me in his son, and who lives in me by his Holy Spirit. God for me, God with me, and God in me. So that's the first reason. The whole church confesses God as triune because God is our Savior. This God is our Savior. And the second reason, and that's related to the first, of course, is that God has made himself known as three in one. So we've talked about the the Catholic tradition, the, the universal Christian tradition, but now let's, let's come a little closer to home, the Reformation. The Reformation's Heidelberg Catechism, um, 1560s German Catechism, asks this, Since there is one divine being, why do you speak of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And the answer is because God has so revealed himself in his word. So I want to stress this. This is, this is Christianity 101 in a way. We all believe this. This is the most important thing about our faith, is that God is this God, that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And every Christian on the face of the earth holds this, believes it, confesses it. The whole church confesses that God is one essence and three persons. And that because it's revealed in Scripture. Now, we said this earlier, and I'll say it again. Scripture itself is a history of God's revelation. It has a historical form. Think of creation, fall, redemption. Think of that order of things. Um, So since it has that historical form, we ought to approach the doctrine of the Trinity first in the Old Testament and then in the New. So that's what we'll do. We'll look first at the Old, and then we'll look at the New. Um, But we have to notice something that... From our vantage point, where we are is this. We're looking back at the Old Testament from the perspective of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Okay? So we don't look at it simply, as it were, standing on its own. Um, What we have to do is look back at, at it from the vantage point of the New Testament because the New Testament is the completion. It's the finishing. It's the summation of biblical revelation. Now, once we've seen the the New Testament teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity, then we're able to see hints of it um, in the Old Testament. Um, B.B. Warfield of Princeton Seminary uh, was developing the thought of, of Augustine, and he put it like this. He says, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before. But it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but what was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies Old Testament revelation, and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. Okay, and that's from uh, Warfield's essay called The Biblical Doctrine of the Trinity. Fantastic. <clears throat> you can get that online and um, 
Warfield is a master uh, teacher of theology uh, from Princeton Seminary uh, last century. So, for example, example, what we see in the New Testament is that Christ is the word. Christ is the word who created all things. But that did not come into light until the coming of Christ. And the reason for this difference, then, is that the Old Testament writers had to work hard to keep Israel from idolatry and polytheism, which is what surrounded them, you know? And so, I mean, it takes a long time to teach and to uh, establish, as it were, to reinforce, to show from so many different ways what the one God is like. There's only one, and he has this character. And that's completely at, at odds with the surrounding cultures, the surrounding religions uh, that surround Israel. All right, well, let's, let's start with the Old Testament then. First of all, uh, considering Old Testament revelation, 1.1 on our outline here, God is one. And what, we mean, what I mean by saying this is that God is one in quantity, God is one in quantity. Uh, Donald McLeod says this. He said, amid all the emphasis on God's triuneness, this remains the most basic point of our faith. There's only one God. To say that God is numerically one is to say there's only one being with that unique nature. So even when we confess Christ as Lord, we're not retreating from this. We're not challenging it. We're not moving away from the singleness of God's being. We do not confess Jesus as a second God, but as identical with the creator God of the Old Testament. So we have important texts, really important texts. You know, the Shema, the confession of faith that every little Israelite boy was to and girl were to confess and to say around their home, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. See, this passage, that's Deuteronomy 6, 4. This passage says that God is the only God and that God is a single being. He's the author of creation. He is the single author of grace. And he's the single object of worship. And nothing that we have to say about the three persons in God undermines this or challenges this in any way. Um, This one being is not an abstraction. He's not an idea. He's a person. And the oneness of God is important. It's important to the covenant. This is the the thing that all the little covenant children were taught and all the grown-up covenant children were taught, too. Uh, There's only one covenant Lord. And... Um, Also, this means that God is the only God in comparison to other gods. So think of think of the Israelites and all the other gods all over the place. Right. Uh, Chemosh and Baal and these other gods, they claim to be God. But God is the only God in comparison to them. And of course, this teaching contrasts vividly with the belief beliefs of Israel's neighbors who were polytheists. So this teaching is strong in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, 39. 
puts it like this. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Now this passage reveals God's unity, both numerically, there's no other God besides me, he says, and in terms of action, only I am, the Lord, gives and takes away life. He alone is the Lord. So this is stressed over and over again in uh, in the first five books of the Bible. It's also stressed in the prophets. We hear the the prophets, as God is calling out through the prophets for Israel to acknowledge this. Um, would somebody read this out for us? Um, Isaiah 40, 44, 6 through 8. Somebody read that. Just read it nice and loud. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Great, thank you. It's so beautiful, isn't it? It's very challenging. It's very powerful. It's as clear as it can possibly be. There isn't any other God. And that's the basis for us, the people of God, to trust. And not to be shaken. And not to be frightened by the opposition. See... You see it? You hear the force of it? This is the prophet. This is the message of the prophets. Only God speaks with final authority, both giving law and speaking of the past and of the future. And there's a tremendous stress here um, on the unity of God in the Old Testament. And I've said it before, but I think, I think it's because the surrounding cultures offered so many temptations to idolatry. So you, you can't introduce the plurality in God's being in, in a situation, in a, in a historical situation where everybody around you is a polytheist. Hmm? Because if you do that, then what happens? Well, people think you're talking about multiple gods. And th- I think that's why the stress is, is as it is um, in the Old Testament. All right. Uh, so 1.1 is that God is one. Uh, God is one in quantity. Okay, so let's go on here, on our outline here. Uh, 1.2, God is also more than one. Now, we're still, we're working on the Old Testament, right? Just Old Testament revelation. Not more than one God, not more than one in quantity, okay? There's only one divine being. There's only one divine being. But there's also a plurality in the way he discloses himself, or describes himself in the Old Testament. And it's not obvious that people grasped this. Uh, Glenn asked me, did Abraham know that, 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 that I am was the only God? Did he get it? 
when God called him. I don't know how to answer that. It doesn't seem to me obvious that, um, that, that people grasp this. But wh- where do we see this idea of plurality or there being um, more in God, more persons in God than one? Well, the, the Hebrew word for God that's translated G-O-D is a word Elohim. And that's a plural word. Sometimes it's translated gods in the plural. But when referring to the God of Israel, it always takes a singular verb or adjective. So the word Elohim, if you, if you were to mistranslate it, you would say gods is the creator of the world. Okay? In the beginning, gods created heaven and earth. Well, no, that's not it. It's in the beginning, God created heavens, the heavens and the earth. And I think this plurality of the way the word is described fits with the fact that there's a fullness of fellowship in God. There's a fullness of fellowship in God. And then also very famously in Genesis 1, I'm sure you're thinking about this now, us and our, us and our. Uh, Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, many people have interpreted this, many Christians, as teaching the Trinity, but I think it's a stretch. Um, I, I don't think that's what's indicated by this. Um, but we also have this, God creates by his word. God creates by his word. Think of Genesis. And God said, let there be, and there was. And in Genesis 1, verse 2, the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. But again, it's really no more than a hint. It's not a full explanation or articulation. The clearest hint that we have is the figure of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord. And this is another hint that's embedded in the um, patriarchal narratives, the narratives about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then also in Exodus, the Exodus story of an unexplained diversity in God's unity. Um, Let me just point this out in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. All right, angel of the Lord, Exodus 3, 2. Then in Exodus 3, verse 4, we read that it's God himself who speaks to Moses from within the bush. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. See, then in Exodus 3, 8, that indicates that God, it's God himself who will deliver Israel. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But then in Exodus 14, 19, we read that the angel of the Lord is the executive of the deliverance. And Exodus 32, 34 says it's the angel who will go before the people to heal them. Exodus 33, 14 says God himself will go with the people and give them rest. And he said, my presence will will go with you and I will give you rest. 
Okay? But then when we come to Isaiah's commentary on the whole event, that's, that's the book of Exodus. That's way back with Moses as the author, but we come forward in redemptive history to the prophet Isaiah, and he writes about the Exodus, and he says this. Isaiah describes the execution of the whole event, bringing the people through the Red Sea into the land, and he ascribes the event to the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 63, 10 through 14. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Okay, so what do we say about this? Well, I think we should notice that the angel of the Lord was not sent to reveal the doctrine of the Trinity. He came to help God's people. He came to redeem Israel. And so we're led to a conclusion, I think, and that is that there's an unexplained and an inexplicable diversity within the being and activity of God in the Old Testament. There's God. There's the angel of the Lord. There's the spirit of the Lord. All three are identified as performing one and the same activity. How is this explicable with respect to the unity of God? Well, I don't think we know um, from the Old Testament. It's just not possible to explain the significance of all this without remainder in terms of the Old Testament revelation. And strikingly, the Old Testament itself appears to make no effort to explain this. It's just all right there. And I think that shows us something that's important, and that, that is that we, don't, we ought not to fall into the trap of overreading the text of Scripture in order to defend the construction of a doctrine that doesn't need it, such a defense. How many divine persons are there? Well, we know from the New Testament there are three, but if we were to look at different strands of the Old Testament, we'd see the Word of God, we'd see the wisdom of God, the name of God, the glory of God, the Messiah, the Spirit. And what's the relationship between these, all these manifestations? Well, we don't know. And the Old Testament doesn't really make any effort to sort all that out for us. Um, so just to sum it up and put it straightforward as I, as I can, it's, it's clear that there's only one God, and it's also clear that God is more than one in some sense from the Old Testament. So number two on the outline, New Testament change. When we come to the New Testament, everything changes. And what I want you to see, first of all, if I may, is this, that the Trinity, or God as one and three, is presupposed. And this is one of the things that's most amazing about the New Testament. And that is that the New Testament writers seem to take the plurality in God for granted. Now, Israel is the ultimate monotheistic religion. But the New Testament writers sense no tension between the historic revelation of the God of Israel as one divine being and the three divine persons called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Quoting now Warfield again. This is Warfield talking about the fact that the Trinity is presupposed. He says, to their own apprehension, that is New Testament writers, they worshiped and proclaimed just the God of Israel. And they laid no stress, they laid no stress than the they, they laid no less stress than the Old Testament itself upon his unity. 
Warfield cites John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So they lay just as much stress on the unity of God. They do not then place two new gods by the side of Jehovah, Yahweh, as alike with him to be served and worshipped. They conceive Jehovah as at once Father, Son, and Spirit. In presenting this one Jehovah as Father, Son, and Spirit, they do not even betray any lurking feeling that they are making innovations. Without apparent misgiving, they take over Old Testament passages and apply them to Father, Son, and Spirit indifferently. It is not in a text here and there that the New Testament bears its testimony to the doctrine of the Trinity. The whole book is Trinitarian to the core. Its allusions to the Trinity are frequent, cursory, easy, and confident. It is with a view to the cursoriness of the allusions to it that in the New Testament that it has been remarked the doctrine of the Trinity is not so much overheard in the statements of Scripture as, sorry, heard as overheard. It would be more exact to say it is not so much inculcated as presupposed. The doctrine of the Trinity does not appear in the New Testament as in the making, but as already made. That's very striking. That's very striking historically. If you think about the history of God's people and the history of Revelation, well, what happened? Why? Well, what happened was the coming of the Son of God in human flesh and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Those things were earth-shattering. So that's what I want to do now is look at 2.2 here. The three are there, Father, Son, and Spirit, at each juncture of Jesus' ministry, at each turning point, each of the turning points in the accomplishment of redemption by Jesus Christ. The New Testament refers to each of the persons. So the birth narratives. Jesus is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke 1.35. That's described as the overshadowing of the power of the Most High. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Jesus is thus, Matthew 1.23, God with us. That's what he's named, God with us, Emmanuel. So his conception. Then at his baptism, the three persons are present. Jesus, the Spirit descending, and the Father speaking out of heaven. Luke 3.22. Similarly, the transfiguration, Matthew 17, verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the father is speaking and he's speaking about the son and he's speaking to the people, calling them to believe. So Jesus' conception, his birth, his baptism, his death. The three are mentioned at his, uh, with respect to his death. Uh, could somebody read this for us? Read it out for us. Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Okay. 
So you see what the writer is saying? He's saying that the offering of the blood of Christ, there's Christ the Son, by the eternal spirit, there's the Holy Spirit, as a sacrifice to God, there's the Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, each of these junctures, crucial things that happen in the life of Christ, his conception, his birth, his baptism, his death, and his resurrection, all three persons appear. The allusion to the three is even clearer in Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is the resurrected Christ. The the resurrected Christ speaking to the disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Very practical passage. It's not a doctrinal statement as such. It's It's a commission. Go. And that answers the question, go, get out there, teach, and that's going to lead to conversions. And when people are converted, they're going to receive baptism. But notice the name into which they're made disciples. It's not just Christ's name. It's the three. See what he says? The name into which they're to be baptized is one name, singular, into which they are made disciples and That's a reminder of the unity of God. And yet that one name is now what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So passages like this led the early church to speak in terms of persons in God. Persons in God. We'll talk more about what persons are as we go along. Notice also that Jesus doesn't say, into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Rather, he repeats the the before each one. And this safeguards the fact that although there's one name, there are three distinct persons. And it's also worth mentioning that the Holy Spirit is included in this single name. Um, We may tend to think of the Spirit as an impersonal power or an influence, but he is mentioned by Jesus in the very same breath as the Father and the Son, And there's no question about their personalness. Now, the richest Trinitarian teaching in the New Testament is Jesus' comfort to the disciples as he prepares them for his own departure. Remember remember this as as we, we look at John chapter 14, 15, 16, 17. Jesus promises the 12 that he will send the Holy Spirit to them from the Father. And that he will come to them himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. There's a bunch of passages. I'm not going to take the time to read them all. But just listen to this one. John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 15, 26. Okay. Now, you can also read the the same things in chapter 14, verses 16 to 18, verse 26, and chapter 16, verses 13 to 15. Now, notice this. The personal pronoun, he, he, is used of the Spirit. So we ought to recognize this and learn to speak the right way, okay? We, We have to learn this. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Okay? The Holy Spirit is a person. He is a he. He speaks of himself in the first person in Acts 13, verse 2. 
Somebody read that for us. Acts 13, verse 2. Okay, thanks. So you, you get the force of that. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, to the work for which I have called them. That's the Holy Spirit who said that. The Holy Spirit speaks as a person. Now, Jesus in, the, the, in John 14, 15, 16 is preparing the disciples for his own departure. He talks about the sending of the Spirit. In John 17, he's, he talks about his fa- the fact that he's going to return to the Father with whom he has been intimate now eternally, eternally, John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. You get the force of that? Give me the glory that I had with you before the world was. This is Jesus. He's praying. This is like you or me, praying. But you wouldn't pray that way. I wouldn't pray that way. We didn't have glory with the Father before the world existed, before the creation. But he's saying that he is a person who has an eternal, intimate relationship with the Father. And after his ascension, after his death and resurrection, when he goes then to glory at God's right hand, he will send the Holy Spirit. He When the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost comes. Praise God, that wonderful day. And on that wonderful day, Peter, the apostle, is preaching. And Peter says this in Acts 2.33. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Jesus did what he promised he would do. He pours out the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to the church. And so the church's understanding of itself is as a people in fellowship with this God who is one and three. This God who is one and three. The New Testament scripture witnesses to this Trinitarian accomplishment of redemption. This Trinitarian accomplishment of redemption. Let me just mention three passages where the apostles write and they they just take it for granted. They don't say, oh, I'm introducing a new doctrine here and it's going to blow your minds. They don't really do that. They just say it. Uh, Romans 1 verses 1 through 4. Second uh, Corinthians thirteen fourteen. We're very familiar with that, and then First Peter one, one and two. Let me read those passages. Romans one, verses one through four. I know I'm racing along here, but we are going to have time for questions. Uh, you're, you're welcome to ask them now, but I, I, I will give you some time to answer. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Old Testament prophets, concerning his son, who was born of a, born a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So you can see clearly there, God, Son, Spirit. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it's our famous benediction. Um, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's Paul. Peter does the same thing. First uh, Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in full measure. Okay, so I'm not I'm not trying to lay out any any components of a doctrine here. Just pointing out the fact that the apostles are they're all thinking this way, and they're not just thinking this way; they're writing this way, and they're saying this to the church that the church's salvation, the whole of the church's salvation, is a matter of um, the, the triune God, this God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, at the same time, I've been stressing plurality. At the same time, the New Testament stresses that God is one. The New Testament stresses that God is one. And therefore, because God is one, there's only one way of salvation. And there's only one people of God. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 3, verse 29 and 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? That's the Jew-Gentile problem in the early church. Do you have to be a Jew to be saved by Jesus Christ, by the true God? And he's saying, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So Christianity is committed to one gospel, one gospel. Okay, uh, well, let me go on to say a little bit more. Now we're going to look at um, a more, in a little bit more detail, a couple of passages. And uh, first one is John 1, uh, 1 through 18. This is, everybody, of course, is familiar with this, but I, I want to call attention to uh, a couple of aspects of it. Um, this is a John's prologue. The apostle writes this prologue to the gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that, he might, that, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and he came, sorry, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, 
even to those who were born, sorry, even to those who believe on his name, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's, let's look at the beginning statement. Um, the eternal word who is the son. This is the very first verse. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now the word refers to Jesus, the one who became flesh and lived among us. We see that in verse 14, the word became flesh. In the beginning, that's, of course, a reference to Genesis 1, verse 1, when God created heavens and the earth. In the beginning, when God created the world, he did not create Jesus. Jesus did not come into being. He was already in being. So we can say he never began to be. In the beginning was the word. So John goes on to write, the word was God. So we can see here, I think, that the Son is divine in exactly the same sense as the Father is divine. What's ever true of the Father is also true of the Son. Then he continues, and the word was with God. And he uses this little phrase, ha theos, with God, with the God. And in this statement, he means God the Father. In the New Testament, every occurrence of Theos, with a definite article, ha, the little O there, refers to God the Father. So the word was with God the Father. So if we take the statements together, the word was God, and the statement the word was with God, we take those two statements together, then we have this remarkable idea of God with God. And this highlights the distinction between the persons of the Trinity. The Word, the Word, and God. The Word could not be the one that he himself was with. And the writer chooses this unusual word. He says uh, that he translates with. It's the word pros. And this word, pros, means toward. It means toward. There are other words for with, but this one especially means Toward. The word was toward the Father. So these two persons are outgoing toward each other. Uh, Donald McLeod says they were for each other. They reached out to each other, living face to face in an existence of total love and sharing. Not simply being side by side, but being entirely for one another. The word was with God. Think of a, 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 my wife who says this to me from time to time. She says, you are my life. That's a very beautiful thing. 
for a wife to say, you are my life. Well, that would be an illustration of what we're talking about here. The father was the life of the son. The son was the life of the father. The being of each of these persons in their distinctiveness now, reaching out toward the other in a dynamic way, and this eternally. And I think what this shows us is that in the heart of God's eternal nature, there is service. There is the service of each other by the Father and the Son, uh, these two divine persons who are eternally together. Um, Then let's uh, notice this same uh, kind of pattern with regard to salvation. Um, you, You can learn the doctrine of the Trinity and not trust in Jesus Christ. That would be a tragedy. There's plenty of people, I think, who could state in in a basic way the doctrine of the Trinity who don't have any confidence in God to save them uh, from their sins. Uh, And that's not, you know, what we're after here. Uh, When we think about what it means to be a Christian, what does it mean? Well, it means to be united to Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, the one who was raised for us, and to have all the things that God bestowed on him. So he died in our place, so we don't have to die. He was raised in our place, so his righteousness is counted as ours. We're united to Jesus Christ. That's the way of salvation. That's the basic gospel. But listen to how the um, Apostle Paul describes that gospel to the church in Ephesus. Now, if you know uh, anything about the book of Ephesians, you, you, may, you may have heard this. Uh, Ephesians 1, 1 through 13, is one long sentence. So Paul gets bad marks for bad grammar in this run-on sentence. But in Ephesians 1, 1 through 13, he describes the benefits that believers have um, because of the grace of God. Listen to how he says this. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, 
You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. That's 14 verses. But notice the Trinitarian, did you you hear the Trinitarian character of the way the apostle writes? You You didn't necessarily think about it in those terms, but the origin of all these blessings that we receive is who? Which person? That's a real question, not a, not a rhetorical question. <laughs> Who, who's the origin of all these blessings that we receive? How does he start? God the Father. God the Father, right. The, the, all the blessings we receive in Christ. The, the Father is the origin. So the first thing that we receive is election and predestination to adoption in in Jesus Christ, verses 4 and 5. But then there's one who has redeemed us with his blood and who heads up all things. And of course, that's the son. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So the, the death of Christ on the cross and then the heading up all things, bringing everything to its cosmic purpose, Jesus Christ, verse 10. And each element in the sentence is given to us in Christ. But then the Holy Spirit is the one who sealed us when we believe, verse 13, and is the guarantee of our, inher- of our eternal inheritance in verse 14. See, So the apostle is thinking the whole way that he thinks, the whole way that he speaks, the whole way that he writes is the salvation that we have, this wonderful salvation, is the purpose of the Father, the accomplishment of the Son, and brought into our lives by the, the activity of the Holy Spirit. See? Doctrine of the Trinity. How important is it? Couldn't be more important, could it? Because it's the way of salvation. Okay, well, thanks very much. I uh, appreciate your attention. And uh, if you're bold enough to come back uh, in a week, we'll talk about the church's discussion of this in its history. Thanks so much.